Welcome to another episode of Mountain Murders. Well, this is our fifth episode. Yes, yes, and we're building quite a body of work. The bodies are stacking up. Oh. I'm really digging it. There she goes. Oh, yeah, I know. All I'm right, sorry. here we go. So cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> well, this case is pretty interesting. I actually remember this case. I was in high school when this made the news, and at the time, this was not a common occurrence, so it was pretty shocking for the region. A lot of people who worked in this uh, manufacturing facility and, and others were very rattled by what happened. Yeah. Because uh, mass shootings were just not a thing, really, that we knew about in the 90s too much. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this went nationwide, national Yeah, I mean, news. now it's like, like it was you, know, a big you shock. hear a lot about gun violence. It seems like there's mass shootings, sadly, um, pretty frequently. Yeah. So it's almost like you hear it now and you're like, eh, another one of those. You don't even remember them. I mean, yeah, Kinda. it's sad yeah. because these things are so tragic. And um, this one hit Western North Carolina, and I just remember people being really shaken by it because a lot of people worked in plants. We had a lot of manufacturing facilities at that time. Yeah, in the that was before NAFTA. Okay, let's not get you on your political soapbox. Oh, no. Okay. So, James Floyd Davis had been employed in the warehouse of Union Butterfield since 1991. So on May 10th, 1995, there was an altercation that occurred between James Davis and two other employees. Okay, so guy goes to work, has an altercation with two of his co-workers. Probably not that uncommon, right? Oh, no. I'm sure you've had altercations with some of your co-workers. Oh, no, I'm dearly loved by everyone. I believe that. I am. I know, that's why I married you, because you're so adorable, and everybody loves you, and you've got sparkling personality for days. That's true. Jolly motherfucker. Um, well, yeah, I see people. I've had, you know, issues. Right. You know, so it, happens. it happens when you work with people, all, especially long shifts, swing shifts, that in a manufacturing setting. Work can be kind of stressful. It's all can be very stressful. Yeah. And, Maybe you know, people can be assholes. You. you know, that happens. They hate their job. They're grumpy. Yes. A little disgruntled. Oh. Right? Sometimes. Okay. Well, the management of Union Butterfield included... Herb Welsh, Larry Cogdell, Tony Balo, and Debbie Medford. And I hope I'm saying Tony's name correctly. So it's, it's a tricky one for me, the spelling. But anyway, um, they conducted a fact-finding meeting concerning the altercation. And James Davis was suspended with pay until the following Monday, which would have been May 15, 1995. So he's on suspension paid for five days after this altercation. And it sounds like it was more than just a few words. I think the altercation had gotten physical. Yeah, to be actually suspended, which with pay, that's cool. You know, better than no pay. But to be actually suspended off the schedule seems to be a pretty big deal. Yeah. It was a big deal. So subsequently, uh, management made the decision to terminate James Davis's employment after they had this meeting. The so he never come back, and then they're like, you're fired after five days. Well, so on May the 15th, Sorry. which would have been 1995, 
Davis met with Tony Balo and Debbie Medford. And during that meeting, uh, Balo informed um, Davis that his employment was being terminated. And Medford informed Davis of the benefits he was entitled to receive upon his termination. So they say that during this meeting, you know, Davis seemed nervous. He was tearful during the meeting. So he was pretty upset. I mean, visibly upset that he was getting fired. Which is understandable. I mean, you got a good job. Yeah. You've been there a couple of years. Nobody wants to get fired. No. And especially, you know, if it's something that is as silly as like you had a fight with your coworker. I mean, you know, at this time, you're probably things are going through your head like, oh, I should have kept it in check or, you know, because in a way it's like, well, you're, you know, you're directly responsible for this. Right. Right. Well, anyway, Balo and Medford asked if there was anything they could do for him. And Davis responded by saying, if you were going to help me, you would have. So a couple of days later, May the 17th, it was about 9 a.m., uh, Davis purchased a gun from Pawn World. It was a Winchester 30 caliber M1 carbine rifle. He purchased two clips and ammunition. And around 11.20, Davis entered the facility of his former employer, Union Butterfield, carrying the Winchester rifle and a, a 380 caliber semi-automatic pistol. I was going to say, interesting, he went with like a rifle like that. Well, he had a, a pistol, too. So he proceeded to go to the break room where he found Robert Walker, Tim Walker, Howard Reese, Gerald Allman, and Tony Below, uh, Balo. And the men were in the middle of a meeting about the building's sprinkler system. So having a meeting here in the break room, and then in walks Davis, and he told Robert Walker and Tim Walker who were representatives from the sprinkler company, to get the hell out of here. So he let the vendors go. He let the vendors go. But Davis aimed the gun at Allman and fired, shooting him in the head. And then Davis turned to Balo and fired the gun. And Reese ran from the room, and he said he felt pieces of the wall hitting him as Davis attempted to shoot him. That's a nightmare scenario. That is incredibly frightening. Yeah, I mean, you're in this probably a tiny room. I, can, I know exactly what it was probably like. You're kind of like a fish in a barrel when so, and, you, and you're in a place where you're not going to be armed because you're not allowed to bring your firearms on the property. And that's horrible. Yeah, that would be horrible. You're totally defenseless in that situation. Yeah. Well, Davis then proceeded down the hallway where the plant management offices were located. So he began to fire shots into each office as he walked down the hallway. So Larry Cogdell was in an office that he shared with Gerald Allman and Herb Welsh. Cogdell looked out, and he said he saw Davis coming down the hallway, and so, of course, he slammed the office door shut. Well, Davis turned the door handle and opened the door slightly until, I guess, Cogdell slammed his body against the door trying to keep Davis out, which would be a natural reaction. You'd want to hold that door, right? Right. Hold that line. Well, uh, Davis shot through the door, and there was a bullet that struck Cogdell in the arm. So Cogdell fell to the side, watched as Davis shot holes into the door. And at some point, Cogdell was also shot in the leg. So imagine that. You get shot in the arm. You're trying to hold the door. You fall down. You know, more bullets are coming through the door at you. I mean, that's how terrifying. Yeah, that's horrible. You've got to be, like, having that feeling of these are the last moments of my life. Like, what a horrible way to go. You know what I mean? So Davis continued to move down the hallway, shooting into those management offices and reloading his gun at least once during this time. Frank Knox was an employee of Dormer Tools. He, that's a parent company of Union Butterfield. 
and he was working in one of the offices. And when Knox heard shots being fired, he hid under his desk, which I think would be a natural reaction. It's a good move. Well, Davis fired three shots through Knox's door, and two of the shots struck Knox in the wrist and chest. So then Davis returned to the office where Cogdell and Welsh were located, fired fired several more shots through the door, and then Davis entered the warehouse area of the plant. So he's shot up management. Now he's going into the actual plant. So he hit his break room first in his area, sounds like, right? Well, where the uh, management, I guess, break room would be. Oh, so, okay. Because it's like in the area near the management's office. Okay, and then he went down the hall and... Pretty much shot up all the management, all of management's offices, or at least in that area. So then um, he goes into the warehouse area of the plant, and I guess he's standing in the doorway smoking a cigarette. So Larry Short, who was another employee at Union Butterfield, um, saw him standing there smoking the cigarette. He tried to flag some cars down for assistance, and when uh, Davis and Short made eye contact, uh, Davis raised his gun, began firing shots at Short. So Short ducked and ran, then dove, I guess, and rolled kind of out of Davis' sight. And soon after, um, Davis surrendered to the Asheville police. Really? Just like that? Yeah. So shoots these folks up, standing in the doorway of the plant, smoking, and, you know, eventually just gives himself up. Well, I guess he didn't have to worry about being fired for smoking outside of a designated area. So when he was in police custody, because he did surrender, he said that he got fired. Damn it. I got set up. They drove me crazy out there. And uh, when the arrest warrants for the murders were served, he pointed to one of the victim's names on the warrant and stated, that's the son of the bitch that fired me. And then was pointing to another warrant and said, that's a troublemaker. He'd made my life hell since I worked there. And then I guess he looked at a warrant for the murder of Frank Knox. And Davis stated that he didn't even remember who that guy was. So Knox was shot pretty senselessly then, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, they all were, I guess, but he didn't even know him. So he kind of got caught wrong place, wrong time on that one. Well, his coworkers um, throughout the plant, you know, of course, after the aftermath of all of this, um, you know, made statements saying that they knew he was a dangerous guy. They said he kept talking about guns and knives that it was almost like an obsession with him to talk about guns and knives and Red flag. violence. And uh, that he talked to himself all the time at work. Another red flag. And never associated with anyone. And I guess when he did, he had, you know, issues with his coworkers. So it seems like uh had a, you know, maybe a bit of a personality problem or something. That's the perfect candidate to do something like that. You know, if you probably polled those workers before this happened, like, hey, who do you work with who's a little, you know, different and you think might do something crazy if they were to be fired or something? And I bet that guy's name would come up time and again. Well, the families of two men that were killed um, during the shooting rampage uh, won a $7.9 million, um, I guess, lawsuit uh, from a jury uh, against the company because they said the company was negligent in protecting them. Well, um, do you have any more details on that? Well, the jury awarded $3.9 million to the family of Gerald Allman and $4 million to the family of Frank Knox. So both men were shot and killed, um, you know, at the plant. 
And the key issue at the civil trial was whether company officials properly protected employees from Davis, who was fired two days earlier because of a string of violent incidences. Okay, those are huge sums of money, for one thing. I don't blame the family. I would uh, feel the same way, and I'd say they probably had some merit to their claims in, well, in ways. Well, the attorney, sure. I guess, who represented the Almond family said that the verdict shows that companies cannot ignore a real credible threat of workplace violence and that this man was a ticking time bomb and that management knew it, yet they did nothing to protect their employees. So many employees testified that plant managers were told that Davis had threatened that if he were fired, he was going to come back and take management with me. Oh, well, there's direct, direct threats. Others, uh, other employees, I guess, cried from worry and some planned escape routes. So some employees took it as far as knowing, like, this guy is going to come back in here, do something. We need to figure out what the hell we're going to do when he does. Like, that's pretty significant yeah that is and this was also like you said before this was commonplace and um i work in manufacturing and we've actually received training on this type of scenario well sadly enough um many workplaces now do offer um safety training yes uh, for you know a shooter active shooter training yes safety training in that i will say your um, houses of worship are doing it schools are doing it i mean it's your options are limited. They're like, you know, it's basically, let's see, what is it? Um, fly, fly or hide. There's an order to that. I'm not sure the order. but um, Or using, like, objects at hand to defend yourself, you know. And, you know, you'd like for them to just be like, hey, we have trained, fit, armed guards we have secured all points of entry, you know, and all this stuff boils down to money, boils down to, you know, cost and money, unfortunately. And, uh, but that's such a scary situation. I could only imagine. And, uh, you hear people say, oh, you know, so-and-so is kind of crazy or so-and-so is, you know, if they get fired or in trouble, they would have no problem, you know, coming back and doing this very thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's pretty scary when you think about it. It's very scary. But at the same time, I don't think a company could protect you from every scenario. I think that'd be impossible, honestly. But um, it sound, in this case, it sounds like, you know, maybe they could have local police, you know, keep an eye out for this guy or, some, you know, tried something. Because he's, he's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, come back and do such and such. Right. Well, this is kind of an interesting um, side note. So, uh, of course, James Davis was convicted, uh, three counts of first-degree murder. He's on death row in Central Prison in Raleigh because three people were killed, two were wounded during the shooting. So, I mean, this guy's never going to see the line of day again as far as freedom goes, right? He should. But uh, this is the interesting side note about it is that uh, he um, was actually a Vietnam vet. And um, so that could maybe kind of come into play, perhaps. You know, there could have been some, like, underlying issues of PTSD or something. Back before they even talked about it. Right. So that's another element to this case that wasn't really, um, I guess, noted at the time of the shooting um, or during the trial, really. 
But, uh, you know, the fella, I mean, he's a killer. We can admit that. But um, so he was a Vietnam vet. And um, there was a, another gentleman uh, named uh, Johnson, Jim Johnson, who is a retired Fayetteville therapist. And um, I guess he realized that uh, Davis was, you know, this Vietnam vet, whatever. And um, they were both soldiers, served in Vietnam. They were during uh, during the Tet Offensive, I uh, guess, yeah. where they were serving. And so um, somehow Johnson ended up figuring out who this guy was and wanted to um, make sure that he was given some uh, awards that What's he— the- was entitled to wasn't that the last major operation to try to salvage the war before it after that we basically pulled out right right like fled i think so. honestly well you know davis he's you know probably a seriously mentally ill person on death row yeah i mean if you think about it he's not the only one the defense never raised that issue of the mental illness as they went into trial and, uh, I mean, he had a pretty bloody past, if you look at it. I mean, he was a, a veteran. He was wounded. He was mentally wounded, if you think of it that way, um, all in service to his country. So um, Johnson wanted to make sure that he was uh, given these uh, medals, these awards that he was entitled to. And so Johnson pinned these two medals on him, a Purple Heart and a Good Conduct Award, Um you know, to to Davis while he's on death row in prison. Oh, so he gave him, made sure he got the medals after he committed this crime. So 40 years later, he was given these, you know, these medals, these awards. So that's kind of an interesting um, side note, I guess, to the case. Well, you can't take away what, I mean, I guess you could. I guess the victim's family may feel differently. But, I mean, he earned those medals. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you have to look at it like, But, I mean, that's that's touchy. He was a soldier, and, uh, you know, he is paying for what he did. He's in prison. He's never going to know freedom again. But he was in service to his country, and so that is important to recognize. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, I mean, it's uh, pretty unusual for someone on death row to be honored in that way, I guess. I'm sure. Um, so definitely something that's uh, a little of out of the ordinary or whatever, but um, I don't know. It's um, you know if you look at it from that angle, I mean it is kind of sad because here's this guy who was in this really bloody battle, probably saw who knows what, probably experienced a lot of really terrible things, and if that goes untreated, and then you know he ends up doing something like this, I mean you got to wonder if. if if and what his mental state was. Or if he had received more help, maybe, or treated, not making excuses for that guy. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Here, Mount Murders, we don't defend the defendants. We don't defend the murderers. But in this case, very likely, I would say, that he had some underlying issues that, because they didn't even talk about, right? They didn't even talk about PSD. TSD even use what what they sell say shell shocked they would use that term right yeah but, so I guess Jim Johnson was a trained therapist he was a pastor a counselor and so uh, you know he at some point had gotten up with him and I don't know if maybe it was through volunteering um, at the prison in the chaplain capacity that he was able to meet with James Davis and uh, 
and kind of figure out, you know, his role in Vietnam. But apparently, um, you know, everybody kind of seemed to know, like, during the trial that James Davis was kind of crazy. I mean, he lived alone. He had no life beyond work. He ate by himself. He talked to himself. He picked fight with, fights with coworkers, which is why he got fired. Um, he threatened to take everybody with him if he were fired. I mean, this is obviously not somebody who's super mentally stable. Nope. And uh, his neighbor said that he used to shoot imaginary groundhogs in his front yard with a forty-four Magnum. Well, okay. So that was like his only, I guess, noted hobby. <laughs> and um, I guess during the trial, they did present some of his background, um, not really mentioning the Vietnam um, issues or, you know, that he could maybe have PTSD or something. But, I mean, his childhood alone probably gave him some serious mental illness or um, PTSD. Because as a child, he grew up here in western North Carolina. He lived with his abusive drunken dad who would threaten to cut the children's throats in their sleep and burn down the house. My God. So not exactly a great childhood. He was beaten with a leather strap that drew blood. Um, if he spoke at the dinner table, he was beaten with a mop handle. Um, he was often left hungry, or his dad locked up the freezer, kept the key, so the kids weren't allowed to get in to the food if they were hungry. My God. Yeah. So his dad uh, sounds like a real monster. And so it's like, well, you know, a lot of these people who go on to commit murder do have very traumatic childhoods. Yes. And I, I was listening to a very interesting podcast. I can't remember exactly what it was, unfortunately. But the this doctor was talking about um, empathy. And, you know, psychopathic tendencies and how, you know, um, it's not always gen- – it can be part genetic with these different markers and stuff. But it can also – it has to be – some people have the genetic make component, but they don't have the child – the child – the abuse at a very young age when before you develop empathy, before you develop these connections in your brain to, you know, fit, put yourself in other people's shoes and things like that. And it sounds like that guy didn't have much empathy or he would be like, if I go do this, what about them? What about he knew, he knew these people, he knew their families. You, you learn, you know, when you work with someone like that all the time, you learn about who they really are and stuff. So yeah. he didn't care at all. He knew how he felt. That's all he had was the job. It sounds like, and it was taken away from him and he was pissed off and he came back to make everybody pay. Yeah. Well, I guess after he did come home from Vietnam, you know, and he had some trouble, um, he had a marriage that collapsed. I guess he attempted suicide. He was diagnosed by the VA, um, suffering from paranoid schizophrenia and depression. So the guy had some issues. So, you know, as you're mentioning, like, he obviously didn't, he didn't have any empathy or consideration or care about anybody else. You can't But I guess if that. you are suffering from you know, schizophrenia, depression, you might not, it's almost like looking at the world with like blinders. You PTSD. Know? It's really hard to feel for other people. Well, there's a reason he lived alone, no friends, all that. It's because how he was. And to say what exactly made him that way is hard to do, but it sounds like it was a combination of yeah. things that happened to him all his life. Yeah, I mean, so it, it does definitely sound like he is seriously mentally ill, and he's on death row, and um, still be, probably not getting any kind of real treatment or counseling for that. And Vietnam veterans were treated when they got off the plane differently than any veterans yeah, I've ever known of time. in this country. 
It was such a different time. Modern times. And, um, I think a Spit lot of on. people nowadays maybe take for granted um, exactly what the Vietnam War or con- conflict, if you will, uh, meant to, to the people who served and how they were treated when they came home. I mean, it was just such a different time. And, um, you know, thank goodness that in today's world we value our veterans a little bit more, at least on uh, – uh, on TV, we slap a yellow ribbon on our Yeah, car everybody and, puts their yellow ribbon on their SUV. The but, right. I mean, at least we're not, like, spitting on our veterans and treating them yes, poorly. right. Even though maybe our government isn't taking care of them the way they should. I don't think they are. But that's but, an episode for a different time. Yes, it is. Well, as but, a veteran, I feel like I can say that. You with, can. With all honesty. And, and you're right. But I know what it's like to be shuffled through the VA system and... We're not openly spitting on them and screaming baby killer when they're getting off the plane. Yeah. We know that. I mean, and that was just, you know, I think it was such a um, a really rough war or I don't even know if it was authorized police action um, that our country got into. And then once the public just had enough and but they it's like they took it out on these young men. Right. Mostly men I mean, that were um, drug into it. Through a draft, mostly. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you see young children die. You see young men grow old pretty quickly. Yeah. They even get the chance. You see your fellow soldiers, shipmates, airmen. I mean, you see those people dying left and right. Well, and that type of a, fighting was... Such a brutal war. It was a meat grinder. And, they didn't have a chance. Well, that's right. And Davis, um, during service, did lose his hearing. And he has some chunks of shrapnel, um, I guess, still in uh, his leg. Some metal there. Um, you know, spent a week in a hospital recovering from wounds that he received in the military uh, in Vietnam. So, you know, the guy had a, a rough uh, bout, I guess you could say. And you know, so who knows if all of those factors would drive a person to go shoot up their coworkers. It's crazy. And this is a different type of case than we've been talking about. It and is, um, but it's still a mountain murder. It is still mountain murders. And um devastating. I'm sure everyone involved will never forget it. The family, those co workers, uh that entire company. So uh yeah, it's really sad to see that quite possibly um he fell through the cracks and uh, exploded on the entire region when he, you know, he finally lost it. Well, you know, it just makes you wonder with these companies, and I'm really glad that these families were able to sue this company and get some money because it does seem that if you are an employer and you have got employees who are showing some serious signs of distress, they're making threats, they're getting to physical altercations, um, they don't seem quite right, if you will, right. um, antisocial, what have you. Um, that it would be your responsibility to protect the other employees from this person, especially if this person is making threats and saying, hey, I'm going to come back here and do this. I mean, people have a right to go to work and feel safe. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like they even had a meeting. Hey, you know, this happened and, you know, maybe we be should on the watch out some security or maybe we should hire, you know, hire, who knows anything they could do. It sounds like they didn't do anything. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, we don't have all the ins and outs of the entire thing, but um, they certainly could have probably done more than they did. Yeah. All right. Well, you've been listening to Mountain Murders, and uh, we're now on Spotify. Oh, it looks so good. Which is pretty exciting. And you can find us on Spreaker.com. You can find us on Patreon. 
And we do have to give some shout outs. We have a couple of Patreon supporters um, who've recently made donations. And so I want to recognize those folks. Hey. Hey, that's right. Um, I want to say thank you to Heather Penninger. She has recently made a Patreon donation. Uh, April Robertson also. Thanks, gals. And Tim Tweed, in addition to our uh, buddy Bill Smiles. So a couple of folks supporting us on Patreon. Thanks, guys. Um, you can also find us on SoundCloud and, of course, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And uh, CastBox. CastBox. Yes, that's one I'm, I'm not familiar with, but so, some people are excited about that. Yeah, so you got to... Um, you got to check us out. If you haven't listened to the other episodes, go back. Some of them are, are pretty interesting and disturbing. <laughs> yes. But we've got a lot more to uh, deliver to you as far as uh, mountain murders. Yes, and we're all over the place. So you, basically, wherever you listen um, to your podcast, you can find us. And if we're not there yet, we will be there soon. That's right. 